This event was recorded live at the 2015 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Welcome everyone to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Um, I am John Bingham Hall, I'm part of Teatro Mundi, which is an organisation, a collective of artists and architects that come together to uh, promote discussion about um, cultural and public space in the city and the kinds of spaces we need to design and protect in the city uh, for these kinds of things. And um, we've worked closely with the Edinburgh International Book Festival on a series called Spaces for Literacy. Uh, which is concerned about the future of libraries, but not just libraries, about all the kinds of spaces we need for different types of literacy, digital literacy, literacy in the developing world, encounters with literature as well. Um, and we, this is the third in a series of three public panels um, debating different themes around this. And we've also had two um, workshops bringing together experts working on the future of libraries, working in libraries and designing libraries. Um, to, to debate these things further. So today our uh, panel includes Francine Huben, from, who is the creative director and founder of uh, Mechanu Architects, who um, are responsible for the new Birmingham Central Library um, and involved in many other extremely important uh, library and public projects. Uh, we have Robin Marsak, who is the director of the Scottish Poetry Library here in Edinburgh. And uh, we have Claire Warwick, who is Pro Vice-Chancellor of Research at Durham University and also a professor of digital, digital humanities concerned about the ways we encounter reading in physical and digital <coughs> spaces. Um, I'm going to hand straight over to Mark Lambert, who is chairing the event today. Um, and with no further ado, Mark. Thank you very much. Um, can everybody hear me? Great. My name is Mark Lambert. I'm the chief executive of the Scottish Book Trust, and um, we've uh, got a fantastic panel uh, here today to, dis to uh, debate what is uh, a really topical and important social uh, subject, um, architectural subject, um, and uh, there's plenty to talk about, so uh, without further ado, we will go ahead and get on with it. Um, there will be presentations from each of the panel members, then we will have a bit of a conversation. Um, we are looking for audience participation and audience passion um, about these subjects. So if you have something to say, put your hand up, and obviously we will leave some time at the end for questions as well. Um, so without further ado, can I invite Professor Claire Warwick just to say a few words to start us off. Claire. Thank you very much. Um, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, we were asked to think about uh, the idea of what the library might look like or what reading and books might look like if there were no paper, if everything were entirely digital. Um, so I'm going to respond to that um, and then obviously you will be hearing uh, very different perspectives I'm sure for people who actually have physical libraries. I'm a specialist in digital things so I'm going to talk about how we think about reading in digital spaces. Um, if there were no paper I think it's almost, well I think it's very unlikely we will ever get to that point. People like using paper. The work that I've done um, where we've actually been studying how people read and what their reading behaviour is in real life shows that people actually really like paper, they need paper. Um, if we didn't have, if we had a world without paper, our reading environment would be seriously impoverished. We wouldn't be able to jot notes, uh, we wouldn't be able to make in the book, I know you shouldn't but people do, uh, even library books I'm sorry to say. Um, we wouldn't be able to flip through the book um, to get, get an idea of what might happen at the end of the next chapter. People like doing that. I know you can do it on one of those things, but it just doesn't feel the same. Um, you wouldn't be able to 
people like being able to make notes on paper from a thing that's paper. Uh, so I think, to start with, I think this is a very unlikely prospect because paper just works. One of the reasons why if you've got a Kindle or an iPad mini, it's like half the size of this is because the ancient Greeks discovered that actually the way our eyes track, they track about that far. This is the, the width of the writing on a Greek or Roman scroll. This is the width of a paperback page or of the, of the text in a printed page. This is the width of a Kindle or a, um, this, is this too big to use as a, as a reading device really, which is why they invented an iPad mini. So firstly, I think paper is, we need to have a repertoire of different devices. We want to switch between what kind of device suits me best for reading. Is it a computer screen? Is it a phone? Is it one of these things? Is it a piece of paper? Is it a newspaper? Is it a magazine? Is it a book? Actually, it's all of those things. We use them in a very complicated pattern throughout the day. So um, if we didn't have paper, we'd still need spaces to do this reading in. And we were hearing this morning from the director of the New York Public Library who told us that probably about 10% of his readers are using collections in that library. But the space is so beautiful and people want to be together in that space. I know that our students, when they think they've got, you know, they need to revise for exams. Where do I go to take it seriously to revise for exams? I go to the library because the library makes me feel I'm doing something serious and important, and people can see my me working. Um, so, I, you know, I think there is a very important kind of social, cultural construct to being in a reading space, which is a library, so we'd still need that space. We'd also find it harder to navigate if we didn't have physical books. One of the things people really value in physical libraries is the ability to go and look at that book stack and find something that's apparently an accidental discovery. It's apparently serendipitous. And when we're looking at designing digital systems for reading, people will constantly say, why can't I do that? Why can't I just find things by accident? Why can't? And also, I don't know how, the, how big the collection is. I can't visualize it. If I'm standing in front of a shelf, I know how big that shelf is. I can see all the books on it. I can find things as if by accident. I can see how many other books there are. If it's a really big library, I can see how massive this library is. I can't do any of that in a digital library. It turns out to be a much more difficult problem to solve in digital space, getting this kind of navigational metaphor right. In fact, it's not really serendipity, of course. Librarians have designed in this in terms of their classification schemes. My librarian colleagues get very cross when people say, I found a book by accident. And of course, they didn't. Thank you, for, thank you, librarians. So I think another thing that we would, we would miss if we didn't have physical books is um, we gain an awful lot of information from the bookness of the book. You know, how do I know if it's a serious book? It looks like one. It's been designed like one. Its cover tells you something. Its binding tells you something. Excuse me. Who published it tells you something. The way the text is arranged tells you something. And I have a PhD student at the moment who's looking at these issues of technically called paratext. In other words, how do we understand what the book is like by the way it's arranged and designed and put together? And do you get the same understanding when you're reading on one of these sorts of devices? And the jury's out, but um, not necessarily, no, you don't. So we would, we would miss out on a lot of that kind of contextual information. Our students sometimes say, well, you know, I know for this essay topic, I need a big, thick book published by Oxford University Press. You know, and that, you know, they underestimate that they can't do that in a digital library. You can't see the big, thick book, even if you know it's published by Oxford University Press. 
I think also, therefore, we, yes, we, for longer texts, of course, in a sense, the library without books is already with us. Many people never go to libraries anymore. My, many of my scientific colleagues in universities just don't go to the library um, because they're accessing articles digitally and they're reading them digitally. But for longer texts, most people do need printed copy. And also, again, for humanities scholars, the library is their lab. The reason why scientists don't go to the library very much is they have a lab. Like, you know, actually, arts and humanities scholars, it can be quite a lonely business working in arts and humanities. The library is your resource in terms of books, but it's also your lab and it's also where you meet people. And I've always thought um, a library is incomplete without a tea room. Uh, because you need you need time to sit in the tea room and have a chat with your colleagues and your friends and just see who shows up. So um, I think all of those things show that we really need the physicality of print, and it is not easily replaced in a digital um, pheno phenomenon. You can say there is a digital library, yes. But I think we shall always need a physical building, and we may need the physical books within it. People love old books. When I ask my students, you know, what would you like if we could design you a digital book that could do anything? And they say, well, we'd like it to look like a book, and smell like a book, and feel like a book. And actually, they don't use beautiful books all the time at all. But when we ask them to think about the book, the sort of ideal book, is beautiful, old, leather-bound, has that particular smell. So, yeah, I, I think we might think... There was a lot of hype at the in, in sort of when e-books were starting to be designed and people said, it will revolutionise everything. We will stop reading print. In fact, more and more and more print books are being published all the time. So I, I simply doubt um, that that is ever going to happen, however much we might like things like this. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed, Claire. So it turns out that perhaps you can judge a book by its cover and <laughs> that um, the physical space of a library is important to the idea of purpose. Um, I'm, I'm sure we're going to hear um, uh, more about that from uh, our next speaker, Francis Huben, um, who has just uh, finished uh, one of the uh, most important library building projects uh, in the UK. Uh, Francine, please come and tell us a little bit about it. I know you've got some video and uh, some images to show the audience. Yeah, well, I will improvise because Richard asked me to show pictures, but I'm a little bit, I, I go and stand here, otherwise it's difficult for myself to see them. So if you just look at the screen, uh, maybe the statement I want to make is that the library does not exist. Every library is different. Um, I'm also writing a book, so I'm also still into books, so it, it's, <laughs> uh, it's not released yet, but I hope to have it ready in November. It will be, the name will be People, Place, Purpose. And the other book I did write before was Dutch Mountain, so I'm still into books, yeah? And I love to make them. Um, oh, you should make all the... something went wrong. The text should be... who's behind the computer? Should be black. And then you see the text. Can you do that? You, don't, you cannot adjust it? Okay, I'll improvise. But I just want to say I did many libraries. Every library is different. But also, for instance, I was a consultant for the Library of Athens. They even don't have books. 
Uh, and, and they have a lot of people who need uh, education there. There's a lot of immigrants, etc. Um, I'm from the Netherlands, from Delft, where's the Technical University in Delft, and where we also did the library of the Technical University in Delft, now about 25 years um, ago. But libraries that I wanted to tell you today is also part of a change. You know, this is how my university looked like in 1969. Uh, these were the buildings that were built at that time. Kind of, it was optimistic, big egos to, to impress. Even libraries from that time looked like you, you're not intelligent enough to enter my building. <laughs> and the, all the librarians were protecting the books because they were their books and not for the audience. <laughs> so there's also, we are part of a changing of time. I don't know what's next slide. Then I made in 1995 this building on that side in the, uh, from the campus from the 60s, a library that wanted to be also a park because I wanted to want, uh, was missing a campus that people could even sit on it. Also realize the discussion what we are having today is when we, we started to design this building was in 1990, people said, we will need no libraries anymore. The future will be about computers, no libraries needed. And also be aware, this is the library of a technical university, so it's academic. But from technical university, you need only the publication was what was published last month, because the, the things go so quickly. So this library wanted to make a library without books, or the books should be in a kind of archive, and that you could reach it very quickly. He had one million books, and I took 80,000 out, because otherwise I was missing in my space um, these 80,000 of books. Um, the building is extremely successful. It's full of people. It's now 25 years uh, uh, later. These are pictures that are made in the, in the 90s. Uh, had the book, what I told you, 80,000 I took out. Uh, it's always interesting for libraries that I try to make something innovation, innovat innovative, and, and also something traditional, both. Uh, this is reading rooms. Uh, people sit on it. It was very, uh, it became the icon, the symbol of this university. It even stimulated them to change the whole. Uh, this is how it looked like in the 60s. We even did the whole park, because for me, Public libraries or par libraries are also very much about public space. You want to connect people. This is how the campus looked like. And we changed it into that. It's not a library space, but it's also kind of library space about connection. And also what happened, now I'm working with my third librarian, she wanted to update the library uh, in 2010. So what was the change from the 90s to 2010? Less catalogues, uh, we were prepared for that even more tables. All the magazines are even now taken away. They're also now, hey, uh, they are now just uh, digitalized and they are now uh, tables and computers, even more. We have all kind of different kind of seating because in the 90s we had more tables and chairs, but now we have more ways of sitting. And we opened up, also I see it as a big change, that they want much more project rooms. Um, it's much more collective studying, so you have m many more different ways of studying than 20 years ago. Even what is interesting, uh, this is the difference, uh, the library plan in 1996 and in 2012, even we, I'm now finding out with her, what if? Uh, 
And because this library is open from 8 in the morning until 2 at night, every day, all days of the year. And also we are now trying to find out the concept that after 5, a lot of the staff goes away. Could these rooms, after 5 or 6 uh, at night, become open for the students? And then in the morning again for the staff. Would that be possible? So it's also ver very much thinking about new concepts. Okay, then very quickly, otherwise I'm too long, but I promised to show it to Richard Sennett. I'm also working on the library, uh, the Martin Luther King Library in um, Washington, D.C. It's a building from Mies van der Rohe. Um, it's kind of me almost drama if I come in. So you have a lot of homeless people sitting in a chair of Mies van der Rohe. Uh, it's a kind of contradictionary for me. But also zeitgeist again. At that time, that building had the, that the head, so I have to combine these two egos. Uh, um, but also, it's a change from collection to connection, from the uh, thinking of the library about books and then maybe tables and chairs, but now it's much more the library where many more things are happening. So what I said, for instance, that library, uh, all the books were around the facade in the daylight. Because the, the idea was that you didn't bring people up, you were protecting your books. So I said, I want to have people um, along the facade. Or I want the stairs are really terrible. You feel almost that you get uh, killed in these stairs. So this should become um, very interesting stairs, like a journey of learning, more symbolic that, you want to m symbolic that you want to meet each other, that you feel safe, that you want to bring your children in this building. This building did not feel that, that children would love to come back in this building. So this is how it looks like now. Yeah, the images are a little bit... So we will change it into this, still Mies van der Rohe, but more open. Uh, this is the way it is, and we will make it more open. We will change it to this. Or this, even the outdoor space, also it was almost protecting to keep the population outside of your building. Nowadays, you want to welcoming, like inviting for everybody is very essential. So this is the way we are changing that building. Or even on the roof. This is the roof. It's the best space of... Uh, why not use it? So we are making... Let me see what happens. This on top with a beautiful garden. And it's still a Mies van der Rohe building. <laughs> but it's a very w will become a very welcoming library. And then just quickly, Birmingham, if the machine works, yes. Should I? <laughs> okay. There exists the old situation of Birmingham, in the middle of the city, in between two buildings. Every library, again, is different. This is a library, what is a public library, in combination with a city archive, in combination with a big children's library, it's almost a library in a library, and the repertory theater, what is producing theater club. This is how I work, observing who are you working for, in which city, and what is the population. Birmingham is a very young population with many, many identities. What is the complication of the city? How should it fit in the city? Of course, the city wanted maybe to have an icon, but I said I want to bring coherence. I want to make something for the people, a people's palace. I wanted to bring people in as a, almost a journey of learning, bring them in the building, not just steps, stairs on top of each other. I don't know what's happening. So this was my idea, the dream of a journey. 
that thing doesn't work that good. And my idea was at the end to see the stars and look how it looks in the how it fits in the history of the city, even in the materials of the city. And I'm also inspired for the circular windows in the cathedral that gave beautiful shadows inside the building. I don't know if you have ever been to Birmingham. And how it then fits the new building in the rhythm of the city, in a city what is not that beautiful yet. And it's part of different periods, what you can read in the city. So I wanted to be part of the story of Birmingham. So we made a building that fits in that rhythm, like three palazzos, the repertory theater, the building next door, and we are in between, reflecting uh, on the public square. That you even, if you walk outside the building, outside of the library, you experience the library. So it is this kind of unique space, an outdoor space, what is sunken into the plaza. That was the idea. Even if you don't go into the library, you experience the library. That was the dream. And also, I think what was almost an emotional um, decision together with the librarian, we put the archive high, high up because we wanted to bring all the people on the lower ground floor and on the mezzanine level all close to the, to the square. So this is just quickly go through the building and then I'm finished. A public building is for me also very much about public space, uh, inviting, welcoming canopy. Even nowadays, a library has a cafe. It is welcoming, it's visible from inside to outside, but also from outside to inside, very important. A big screen, what you can read the activities from inside and from outside. And the most used books, close to the entrance, going down to the library. I also have to learn that in every country a, a children's library is totally different. Here it's really like a library in a library. I even had to learn that you, it's allowed to have homeschooling here in the UK, what is not possible in my country. Storytelling, extremely important, the storytelling space. Going through it, getting to the daylight. This is the music library where you can have events also outside and that you can experience and look back um, to the big building. Going up, libraries are very much about business and learning also. This is, uh, there's uh, classrooms, uh, uh, learning English, uh, setting up your own business. Going up, getting into the uh, more traditional space, the, the heart of the building, the book rotunda, getting out part of the archive, showcasing it in a, in a traditional, beautiful space. Staff with their own clothes, recognizing, ro roving staff, seeing the stars, what was my dream, uh, shelving, sitting along the facade. There's many ways of studying nowadays, still tables and chairs, small rooms where you can sit all alone or together, project rooms where you can sit with six, silent spaces, noises, uh, noisy spaces. Some people create their own space, but just setting up a headset. So we have to be aware of the silent library. You can create it in many, many different ways. First, you want people to solve the problem themselves. So you have a desk for yourself. And if you can't solve it yourself, you go to the librarian. I think, I think that's an old way of thinking. Uh, showcase, this is the museum inside the building, exhibition space, working together with the British Film Institute, 
with their own space, going up, and now we go to the more quiet spaces, the research spaces um, in, the, in the library, where you can study, supervised or not. For instance, Shakespeare, they have a beautiful uh, Shakespeare collection. So this is more the quiet area, more the researchers. Going up, seeing the stars, looking back, what is an amazing space, into the book rotunda. Go, so you just went through the whole archive, it was totally climatized. That's the golden part of the building. Getting to the second roof garden, where is also the library staff. And at the end, I always take something from memories, from the history with me, going into the future. That was this classical space of the book rotunda, but also the Shakespeare Memorial Room, what we took with us from the very first old library in Birmingham. But maybe most important, that's my last slide, is the, oh yeah, Malala opened it, which <laughs> of course was beautiful because she lives in Birmingham. And this is a little movie about how people are extremely proud of their building and use it. Maybe you can start it if it works. This central library here is now the biggest in the whole of Europe. I can't tell you how proud I am of that. It's just a fantastic experience. And it's, it's such a good library, you need to go. I'm just awestruck. It's absolutely fantastic. It looked like more like Harry Potter, you know, when they go from one floor to another without walking or uh, the stairs, it looked like that. Yeah, the, the ring feel to it, you know, like you've got the bull rings, you've got the circle of life, the circle of knowledge, you know. But look, it's, a ve it's very big and there's loads of circles around it. It's got all the areas, totally different library, very modern, as I say, totally different to when I was little. I think it's wonderfully laid out and very approachable. I'm just doing some colour jerk because it's easier doing it in a library than at home because down here it's just a work environment. I love the idea, the concept of just going into an archive section that represents the old library as well. You know, the Shakespeare library is just absolutely fantastic. I quite like the um I don't know what it's called, the, the big circular bookcase down there, like the, where there's a room and you turn around and there are all the books around it. Yeah, I really liked that. The teenagers, definitely, I think it would be nice to come in and study because they can go off and go and grab a coffee and then go back to their work and then they can have a walk about outside. Downstairs was fabulous, you know, just the idea of just being having, you know, places where kids can sort of lie because that's how they read. I really like the garden and stuff because uh, if you're in a work environment, you need like nature really. When I'm older, when I become a dentist, and I'm going to be studying in the library, and it's going to be really fun. Because it's just amazing, I would come here more often, like a lot. This is really nice. It's outstanding. I, I like it. I like it definitely.
Wow, I'm sure you'll uh, all agree with me. That's uh, absolutely stunning. Um, and uh, we will, uh, I'm, uh, if we have time, return to the question uh, of, if you like, psychogeography of how design enables and allows purpose and uh, learning and uh, all of the, the kinds of things that libraries are, uh, exist to, to do. And talking of which, it's now time for my esteemed colleague, Robin Marsak, director of the Scottish Poetry Library, absolutely wonderful, um, to tell us a little bit about um, her views on, on these kinds of subjects and what's happening with the Scottish Poetry Library today. Thank you very much, Mark. Um, of course, I'm going to take up themes that Claire and Francine have already touched on because we're talking about libraries in general. And the question of what a library is and offers, and indeed what poetry is and offers, is sub uh, those are subjects that are very regularly exercising our minds at the Scottish Poetry Library. So I'm sorry that I can't just sort of send you out down the Royal Mile and say go and look at the building because it's being refurbished at this very moment. It's undergoing changes that reflect the way that we are thinking about the necessary flexibility of the library space and our idea of accommodating more than the silent solitary reading that has characterised library usage. And yet, we don't want to provide the computer-heavy book-light spaces that many libraries are becoming. And I'm really, really sorry to hear that Birmingham has had to put out a call for people to donate books because their library budget has been cut. That seems a terrible reflection on the pride they ought to have in that building. So having a building set aside for poetry, though, a purpose-built library, we think it's certainly the only purpose-built poetry library in the UK, uh, we think in Europe, possibly the world, um, makes a statement for us that no online presence could make. It says Scotland's poetic heritage is a matter for pride. Of course, we've got Robert Burns as our poster boy for poetry. Uh, he's recognised all over the world. It says, more importantly, perhaps, that contemporary poetry is really to be collected, it's to be cherished, and it's to be made accessible to everyone. And it also says, despite the title, it's not just a library for Scottish poetry, that we see Scotland's poets in an international context. It's a place of research, it's a place of apparently serendipitous discovery, and it's a place of serious reading and casual browsing. In other words, it's just like a library, but it flies the flag for poetry. And it says to us and to our visitors from many nations that this art is important to Scotland. Having a building dedicated to poetry is, to use liturgical language, the outward and visible sign of an inward grace. Now the fact that we've been out of the library since April, there are nine of us, um, nine staff at the library, but as busy as ever, does that suggest that we could be just an online presence, a library with no paper? Well, I think that part of our generally unsettled feeling as a team arises from our not having the books to hand. Four or five times a day more, we need to look up things in books 
to answer the questions we're asked and to do our work. And the kinds of questions we're asked range from real research questions to people saying, I'm getting married, um, do you have a poem that would kind of reflect both my Scottish um, um, ancestry and perhaps also, um, you know, something about my, my husband and he's going to be Brazilian. So do you think you've got something that will do? Um, yes. <laughs> uh, but only if we can look it up in a book, because what we, is it, what, what, what we need isn't online, and I believe that it cannot be online if we are to pay proper due to the creators, and if we are to preserve creative copyright. And I firmly believe that we've got to do that, that everything can't be free. And let me say now that once the building has made its statement, it's the people who animate it. It's the knowledge of trained librari librarians and all the staff in their different spheres that allow us to offer a unique service to the community. And let me unpack that notion of community a little. We've been talking about communities. Our community of readers value the space and they value the easy access to the collection. Apart from the archive and a few expensive books, nothing's locked away. They like to wander off the Royal Mile into a space that's both energised and contemplative. To read, certainly, but also to listen to poets reading and to talk about poetry. Because our aim is to bring people and poems together, we want to offer both the traditional space of the page and other spaces in which you can encounter poetry. Enabling people to hear poets reading aloud to hear the actual voice of the poet speaking the lines as she heard them in her head is hugely important in developing an audience for poetry and the space to do that in the Scottish Poetry Library. Of course you can listen to recordings online and we're trying to make more of those so that people who can't come to the library, our online community or even wider, our international community of users can access those voices. But why do people go to concerts when they can listen to pristine recordings at home? Because, because it gives them a sense of authentic contact and because they experience it as a community, as you do here today. And this is the shared physical space of reading, of listening, of discussion, that's, that's what's so important. Of course, mostly, reading is a private experience. And reading poetry on the page, as opposed to on the screen, as Claire has talked about, is a very particular experience. Now, it's the white space around the poetry lines that suggest poem, not prose. That's a simple definition of poetry. There's loads more white space around the print than there is with prose. And many poets play with that idea of space deliberately. They make the poem visually as well as, 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 well as verbally engaging. Concrete poetry has a very strong tradition here in Scotland, and we've got a fine collection of it at the library. Of course it can be reproduced on the screen now that text can be more stable. And when they weren't stable, poetry lines got lost. It was very difficult to read a poem on a, on a screen. But that on the whole doesn't reproduce the sensation. And it is very sensual, we had that in our provocation, of turning the page in a carefully composed collection. 
of moving from one room to the next. Stanza, the word we use to describe a verse unit, that means room. The typeface is or should be important. The difference in size and shape, just what Claire was saying, are you going to, is it a serious book or is it a lighter book? Or for us, the difference between a full collection and now the very flourishing pamphlet form give a signal which disappears when the book isn't physically present. Now we produce something annually online called Best Scottish Poems and we couldn't afford to produce that as a book. And I love having that annual sampler online, but for me, books are where poetry live, lives, as well as in the mouth and in the ear. Now, I couldn't finish without a poem. So the library building and the page poem share characteristics which for me have been wonderfully expressed by the great Scottish poet W.S. Graham and his poem, private poem to Norman MacLeod. So he wrote in that poem, the spaces in the poem are yours. They are the place where you can enter as yourself alone and think anything in. I'm just going to read that again. The spaces in the poem are yours. They are the place where you can enter as yourself alone and think anything in. And at the Scottish Poetry Library, we think those spaces are worth maintaining for the community. Thanks. Thank you, Robin. That's a very eloquent um, defence of um, the space of, of poetry, the space of a book, the space of a library, and uh, the sensual experience that um, all of those things involves. And in fact, I think one of the common themes across all three presentations is that uh, question of uh, all that difference between an online experience and the sensual experience of uh, an actual book. Um, in uh, somebody's hands. Um, reading is also uh, partly the work of the hands, um, the space of the page, um, and the space of libraries um, themselves and how they enable purpose. And let's start with those library spaces um, to, to begin with. Uh, Francine, we've, you, you had to cram in a lot uh, in a very short space of time, but um, you were beginning to show us how, uh, as an architect, you had thought about how space enables certain kinds of very sensual reactions from the human being and how it enables certain kinds of studies or certain kinds of activities. Can you say perhaps just a little bit more about how you work as an architect and how you think as an architect along those lines? Lines and how that affects your design? Um, first of all, it's very important to understand what kind of library it is, also what kind of collection, um, and also be aware that I try to explain, maybe I was too quickly because I, was, I thought I had to hurry up so much. Uh, so it wasn't too, you could still follow it a little bit, yes? Yes, okay. But I think what I forgot to tell you is, is like, I, I'm now doing these libraries almost for 30 years, be prepared for unpredictable change and the building is longer for that so it's very much important to create space and that's why i like your poem so much create space for unpredictable change maybe uh, later on we will have even more book or less books or maybe something totally else but we have never thought of it uh, you don't know but space and that's an almost as um, uh, 
experienced by your senses. You know, how is the daylight? What do you see? For instance, why, for instance, uh, I made the circles on top of the Library of Birmingham was totally not from the outside, but from the inside. Had to create a kind of own space, what gives a kind of a nice reflection inside the building. But also you look back with a new perspective on Birmingham. What is not that beautiful yet? Uh, <laughs> so it gives you... That's, yeah, but that's very delicately put. <laughs> no, but, uh, but I, I'm right. So it gives you, gives you... Imagine that it would be just glass and then looking... So you needed this kind of... We needed a lot of light, daylight to come in, but also kind of own atmosphere that you're inside that building, that you recognize it. Even if maybe may nowadays people make selfies, but you really feel that you're in the library. And also the experience, because there's all, I don't know, it's always this discussion. We don't need libraries anymore. Is the library about books or not about books? Or, to be honest, I, of course I do care, but let's see what will happen. But we need this space for these changes. And it's an experience that we make floors with different experiences. And some people love to sit uh, in a space uh, what is very noisy. Other people like to sit in a very quiet space. And some people like to sit and look outside to the street. And the other one doesn't want daylight at all. We are the, 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 the a melting pot, maybe not Edinburgh, but especially Birmingham <laughs> or many other cities, and give space not only for books, but also for all these all different kind of people uh, who w w have to find their own library into the library. Yes, and I, I mean, the, the two examples that, you, that, that we've been able to see most of in the pictures are obviously the circle, uh, these, these metaphors uh, of, of a circle and of, if you like, the ladder of knowledge as you go up the, 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 the stairway. So um, design then is, is rooted in um, metaphor and metaphor is rooted in uh, the physicality of, of being, uh, being a human being. Um, Robin, uh, you, your, your library now is, uh, you've decided to um, refurbish the library. You spoke about the kind of space you wanted, um, that it was not going to be book poor and technology rich, that uh, you spoke very eloquently about the live experience. Um, and uh, can you tell us a little bit more about what is happening with the library and, and, and how that is help, going to help your purpose, if you like? Well, it's so interesting to hear Francine talk um, about what she did in Birmingham because um, she was talking about letting more light in, which, which is an interesting part of what we are trying to do too. But in order that people from the outside should see what's going on from the ins on the inside. And in our previous building, that was more difficult. And I think sometimes it looked... The worrying thing for us being called the Scottish Poetry Library is that we have three big barriers <laughs> right there in the title, right? So first of all, and that we have to disabuse everybody all along for every term of that title. So first of all, they say Scottish, and I say, well, not only Scottish, uh, but you know, it's an international collection. Um, and then people get anxious about poetry. They're maybe not so anxious about libraries because most people trust libraries, it's said. Um, but they are a bit, a bit anxious about library, but they are quite anxious about poetry. So for me, for us as an organization, one of the things that we've been really interested in, and we've been going through a process about equalities and diversity, as many libraries in Scotland will have been. And we've been thinking how much of a barrier is the physical building because we're trying to open up the notion of poetry um, to make it more, 
I'm, I'm anxious about that word accessible, actually, because then we become, we become, we become worried about quality. Does access mean, you know, different things? So we want to make the library more open and more, more welcoming, as yeah. you said, uh, to, let the, to let the light into the library. And that is also letting the light in to the art form. But if we're going to talk about access, then we have to talk about the interface between the physical experience of being able to come into the library, yep. uh, the, the, the uh, inability to access that, the, the library on behalf of you know, many people, and therefore what the online world gives you in terms of, or gives people in terms of access to content. Oh, of course, the online library is fantastic in terms of, of, of course, perhaps eight to 10,000 visits, you know, come eight to 10,000 visits for the library annually, so it's tiny, it's not like Birmingham. Mm. Um, but, and I hope it will be greatly increased, but then the, the web, you know, 250,000. So, that's, so that's fabulous. Yeah, and that's a tremendous exercise in democracy, yes. perhaps. Yeah, yeah, uh, it, it is. Over and beyond of what, what a physical space can give you. Yeah, absolutely. But the one doesn't have to be exclusive, uh, exclusive of the other. And the things that we can do in the library, for example, having a reading, we can record that and then we can send it out so that we can share it with more people. But a better library environment will allow us to record better too. So. But let's come back to Alberto Manguel and, and his quote and the actual physical space um, of the book, book. And, of the, mm -hmm. and of the of the page that Claire was talking about. Um, uh, and I suppose uh, what one might term haptics, which is you know, the, the, the sort of tactile experience of, 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 uh, of the book as a physical object and all of the different kinds of things that you reference that that, that, that gives us. Um, we were speaking earlier and you were saying you were doing a longitudinal study on students and um, their uh, practices or uh, how they use the online world and how they use the book as a physical object for, for study. Can you say a little bit more about that? Because it seems to me to go right to the heart of what is important here. Hmm, yeah, I mean, we... Um, sorry, I'm not sure if that's on. Is it this? Yes. Yeah, okay, we what we've been doing is, is studying how people integrate reading into their everyday lives. Um, and yeah, what we're finding is people move quite quickly from one sort of reading to another. It's not just searching for information digitally. It's not, people are reading in quite an immersive way still. So this myth that people are only searching for information and reading is dying is a myth, I think, from at least from the evidence we have. And we were conducting this study across the period arguably when some reading technologies have possibly changed more profoundly than perhaps for hundreds of years in the sense that we were from 2009 to 2014 we saw massive change in reading technology and yet we saw very little change relatively little change in reading behavior the amount of reading didn't go down you didn't see more digital less print in fact the more people read digitally the more people read full stop and We've seen, you know, there's no correlation that we could find between the age. We have many mature students who are librarians and archivists, and people like that, doing digital things. And we saw no correlation between age and relative amounts of reading. Sometimes our younger students were the ones who read most. So uh, there, is, there is quite a lot of, and the, the, one of the interesting things, I think, is that how attached all of our participants were to, to the book, to the idea of the book, 
to the physical thing. What age were they? Um, they well, they range between the youngest would be about eighteen, nineteen, and the oldest in their fifties, sixties, because we have quite a lot of um, mature students as well. Um, so it's what fits. It's do you read the newspaper on the bus? Do you read? Um, do you read an actual physical book? The interesting thing is, there's very little. People have often said, "Oh, you, you know, digital is terrible because you can't read it on the beach and you can't read it on the, in bed and in the bath." And actually, either people were being very coy, but they really very seldom actually mentioned the fact that they ever did read in the bath. Or read on the loop. Yeah, well, they didn't tell us about that. Do they? Yeah. Um, the, the, that's the thing. They didn't. People didn't. There's a sort of emotional idea of how we think we read and what we think we love in these beautiful books. And what we were actually finding is that reading is a very mundane activity. We do it all the time. It's part of our lives. We can't stop. But I suppose the challenge to that would be, in a sense, you're talking about one kind of reading, and the issue is not really whether people are still reading. I would be perfectly disposed to accept the argument that the digital world means we read more and not less. It's the type of reading that we do that is coming, that is being eroded. That is the argument that um, what the digital world gives us is skim reading, is reading that Naomi Barron in her new book, um, uh, Fate of Reading and Digital World, um, called Reading on the Prowl. Um, that means you skim over lots of different access points of information um, rather than the sustained immersion, the deep reading experience of a sustained immersion in a particular text that is quite long and that might even take you weeks to read. Uh, there is no substitute for that in terms of human experience, is there? No, and I, I think that's absolutely right, but we, we saw, that's what I mean about people have a different repertoire of reading. The same person will move from, right, I need to just find out a bit of information, to I want to do something to keep me amused while I'm on the train, to, right, I've been looking forward to this all day, now I'm going to sit and read something important, you know, something that matters to me emotionally for, you know, half an hour, an hour, something like that. Um, so I... People still do appear to be reading very much for pleasure. And as I said, when we, we asked people to keep diaries of their activity, but then we also had some focus groups. And when they were talking to us in the focus groups, they were saying how important reading for pleasure still was to them, despite the fact they were doing uh, courses of study. They weren't just reading books for study. They were saying, well, this is, this is what I look forward to. This is my time out. Yeah, but I think reading for pleasure, again, is a slightly different element. It's, it's about how long you, and, and how undistract, the undistracted time that you spend with a particular kind of text. Surely with something like poetry, this is, you know, you have to, you have to be reading slow. I think you do, and turning the pages part of that, you know that you that you that you do read slowly, um, and that's one of the pleasures. But a poem's quite short, often, so it can deliver a huge amount in quite a short amount of time. So I've not seen any studies about this, but I would really love to know whether poetry reading has gone up because you can do it in this quick way, as it were, but you can do it quick and deep. Well, That's indeed, the great thing. And, and one of the predictions is with the digital world that, um, that the short story will be on the rise and uh, so will poetry because uh, we right. have less time. Speaking personally, even if a poem is short, it takes me quite a long time to work out oh, what it's yes. about. Oh, wow. um, okay, well look, we've got another 10 minutes or so and I think it's about time to open it up to our audience. We have already some people who'd like to answer questions, ask some questions, and we have 
a uh, roving mic making its way to you uh, as we speak. So we will start with the easiest person to access here, the f person in the second row who has their hand up. Um, uh, you touched on my concern, Robin, about there being no book money to buy books. And this is my great concern, but it's not just the e-books threatening libraries, but lack of money because of public sector budget cuts. Um, so I just wondered um, how you felt about that and you know, lobbying um, politicians, etc. is something we can do. But um, I just wonder how concerned and, and, and in the, the future do you think there's actually going to be libraries? And of course we heard of the uh, tremendous irony of this fantastic library being built in Birmingham just as the uh, budget for the books is cut. Yeah. Um, so Robin. Well, Mark will know a lot about this too, but um, it is, of course, a huge concern to us. And I think that what we, I, I know that SLIC, which is the Scottish um, uh, Library and Information Council is very concerned about, is the, how powerful the advocacy can be from librarians, but also from readers, to say how much they value their libraries, but not just I value it because I went there when I was a child, though that's great. But, you know, it makes me feel better. Um, I, I, I enjoy reading and it kind of, you know, it has all sorts of benefits, literacy benefits, obviously, but other benefits that we can suggest to people uh, come out of libraries. And that's the case that we have to make politically, I think. Um, but otherwise, you know, just do the normal things, you know, write to your MPs, write to your local councillors and say, it, it, you know, don't do it because it has an enormous ripple effect cutting a library budget. It's not just depriving a few people of a couple of crime books. It's nothing like that. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So camp use your local library and campaign for it. Now, yeah. we're running out of time. I want to be fair because um, there are two individuals here who put their hand up first. So the lady first here in the white. Um, I wanted to talk about um, light. I was really interested that you mentioned light. We have a beautiful building in the middle of Edinburgh. It's the Central Library. It has libraries on four floors. They are lit from the west. Um, if you stop and actually take notice, they're very well lit. It's very well designed. The council owns the land behind, and they are in the process of uh, selling it off for a 240-bed hotel, which will rise right up the building, taking all the West light. Mine, is, again, is a kind of political question. How do we get out to people? How do we get together and say, this must not happen? This is a violation. This is a desecration. This, is a great, this will be a great loss. OK, let's give um, Claire a chance to uh, uh, answer that question, if you, if you can, if I can put you on the spot. Yeah, um, my mic isn't working, so I'm just going to talk. Sorry, I thought it was working. Um, yeah, so I think it's, it's very difficult to know. I mean, it, this, this is part of the problem, that there is a, a widespread belief in political circles that digital solves everything. And that if you just have enough digital stuff, people won't need physical stuff and they don't need physical spaces. Now, I once heard um, someone presenting, he happened to come from the Museum of the University of Florida, and he showed a beautiful picture of the beach in Florida, and he said, so, anybody having seen that decide they don't want to, uh, this is a digitized picture, did they don't want to come to the beach anymore? No, I didn't think so. So, the point being that I, I, think, I think we have to try and 
disabuse the political classes of the idea that digital will replace physical and that it's cheaper than that and that people, the more you digitize, the more people want physical space and to be in, you know, to see the real thing that has been digitized. So I think those physical spaces are extremely important and the idea of, as you say, if you block the light, how, how do you read without effective light? So I, I think this, in some ways this is, this is a sort of, okay, so it's just easier to do it that way. It's, it's a misunderstanding of what's really happening, I think. I think that's, that's really very, very well said. Okay, the gentleman here in the striped shirt. Um, I have, a, to complete the hat trick, I have a political question as well. Um, <laughs> nowadays, it seems like political discourse and debate and news coverage rely very heavily on sound bites and essentially boiling down complex information to, into, as a, again, sound bites of dubious accuracy. Do you think there's a place for libraries and kind of public information fora in general for allowing people to fact check and to get more about the in-depth information behind political sound bites? Francine, what would you what would you say to, to, uh, to I that? I didn't understand the question. Uh, okay. so. <laughs> given given the fact, given the poverty of of what passes for political discussion and political information coming from politicians today, mm -hmm. um, is what what is the role of the library in terms of getting real information, giving citizens access to real information? Uh, Whatever, also my conclusion of today is that we really have to work together to communicate better what libraries are and, and that there are many different libraries and that we don't fight to each other uh, because then said, oh, it should be digital, it should be a book. Or we need all these kind of things and we should work together to open the eyes of politicians and maybe even research, also let research help us with economic, uh, with facts and figures like you showed, you, you told a lot of I forgot your name, but you're from Amina. Dundee. Amina. Yeah, you, sh you told so beautiful about facts and figures, what is all happening in libraries. And I always have this, even if I talk to my own mayor in Rotterdam, what used to have a, uh, 30 years ago, they built one of the most innovative libraries, maybe even the world. It's going, uh, they didn't put any attention the last 30 years to that, not really to that library. Then the, the mayor said to me, oh Francine, we don't, I don't think we need libraries anymore. Come on, come to the city of Rotterdam, we really need libraries. Uh, uh, so, but I think that I always get this answer of, oh, we don't need libraries anymore. So I think there's a task of all of in, in this room um, Absolutely. To, to open eyes. That's, that's what a library for, and I think that's a, a great place to, to finish this event. Unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap it up. We've had um, a, an hour pass uh, very, very rapidly, and we've uh, barely scratched the surface um, of this enormously important and interesting topic. Um, I think the three presentations were absolutely brilliant um, and uh, really, really fascinating. Um, so I would like you to give a very, very, show your appreciation very, very warmly for Claire Warwick, for Francis Huben and for um, Robin Marsak from the Scottish Poetry Library. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.